You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, episode number 37. Hey guys, happy Monday. We are doing a birth story episode today, and this is actually a pretty special birth story. If you guys remember back around Mother's Day, I did a giveaway on my Instagram and my Facebook um, and my website and just everywhere, a giveaway where you had to submit entries. So it was not just a random giveaway. You had to submit entries of your personal story, why you wanted to win this giveaway. And we were giving away $2,000 to one person. So I got tons of entries, of course, and we narrowed it down to a few and we picked Maria. And Maria is sharing her birth story today on the Mommy Labor Nurse podcast. When I contacted her originally about the giveaway, about winning the giveaway, of course, you know, she's obviously so excited and we, you know, got to talking and I said, hey, you know, if you want to come on the podcast, we would be happy to have you on and hear your story of your daughter, Camilla. And guys, there is so much to say about her story. She has been through so much with her daughter, and I really am just so happy that she agreed to come here on the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast and share her story because it was so powerful. Um, If you listen to any episodes of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, any sort of birth stories on here, I'm not saying anybody's is better than than others, of course, Um, but if you listen to anyone, this is definitely one that sticks out to me um, and one that has a lot of meaning. So I'm not even really going to introduce a whole lot of what um, what her story is. I'm just going to let her let her talk um, and tell her story of her daughter Camilla. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where we firmly believe in the power of education when it comes to giving birth. Tune in each week as we dive into pregnancy-related topics, expert interviews, and a variety of birth stories. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now, here's your host, educator, registered nurse, and fellow mom, Liesl Teen. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited about being here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am too. Um, can you start by just telling our listeners a little bit, a little bit about yourself and your family and where you're from and all of that good stuff? Sure. Um, so my my name is Maria Eva Aitriaga Rivera. Uh-huh. A pretty long name uh, <laughs> in the U.S., but uh, that's how. They name us in Latin America, long yeah. names. <laughs> I may say that's a nightmare of any nurse who has to chart. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. I've had much longer. Don't worry. <laughs> my 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 maiden name is actually, so my last name is Teen, so it's like super short. My my I'm German, so my maiden name is Heinzelman, which is 13 letters, I think. So I'm used to the, I, I understand the long names. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Wow, yeah. I usually run <laughs> run into different situations where how should I call you? Eva or Maria? Yeah. Or what's your last name? Because uh, usually in Latin America, we when we get married, we don't mm-hmm. get our husband's last name as you do here in the US. Okay. I will be Maria Eva Idrago Rivera de Gonzalez. So imagine Ooh. how long is that like belongs to Gonzalez. Gotcha. So it is pretty long. 
But anyways, um, I go by Eva most of the time. Okay. I go by Eva. And I am a 25-year-old woman who was born in Venezuela. Okay. Venezuela is a country that is located between Colombia and Brazil in South America. And Venezuela is about the size of Texas. Wow. It has around 30 million people living there. And we really don't have, like, weather stations. We only have, like, whenever it rains and whenever it doesn't rain. <laughs> Literally, it, ah. it is, yeah, it resumes to that. Um, we don't have a winter time. Actually, my hometown, which, which is called Maracaibo, a pretty long name, uh-huh. uh, it is as hot as 120 all year long. Oof, girl. Yes. I thought North Carolina was hot. <laughs> no, that's real hot. No, no, no. <laughs> that is, we have a nickname for my hometown, and we call my hometown the Oven City. So it's <laughs> as hot as an oven. Yes, it's really hot. So I come from there. Um, around 30 million people is population in my country, uh-huh. and around 2 to 3 million people in my hometown. And the wow. funniest thing is that we all know each other. <laughs> interesting interesting but it, it really is true so I think that's how it is in Latin America yeah, and yeah. what well, I'm currently living in southwest Kansas area okay a pretty big change for me um I'm currently living in a town that has 25,000 people total so big difference <laughs> yes. from millions right <laughs> definitely definitely it is a huge change that I had to adjust to. Uh, and um, I came here to the U.S. after I married my husband mm-hmm. in 2015. I was 20 years old. Okay. When I got married to my husband, I met him when I was 15 years old. Okay. And uh, we have been together for 10 years now. Wow. It's 10 years. So um, we met at church, and then since, since then we have been together and you know going through life and you know facing everything life is throwing at us yeah so um, my husband is also a Venezuelan guy okay so really I didn't have to a lot of trouble there with a with a cultural difference so we can we do we get along pretty well yeah and when we came to the U.S. uh we came to the U.S. because my country has been under a dictatorship for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So there is a political and humanitarian crisis there. And unfortunately, to be able to be safe, to be able to survive, we needed to leave the country. Yeah. Other yeah. 5 million people also left the country yeah. and, uh, and went different places in the world. And us, we decided to come to the U.S., and we have been here since 2015, mm-hmm. a little bit after we got married. And since we arrived here, well, we have been working pretty hard. We started out in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm-hmm. So um, it was, you know, it, every start is rough. Mm-hmm. I cannot say any less, but we made it through. And then we got an opportunity here in Southwest Kansas and we decided to come here. Cool. Um, so... When I was in Venezuela, I was studying um, in the in a university called University of Zulia, which is a public university where I was completing a bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics. Okay. So I okay. went through around two years of med school, 
in one year of the specialization. But since, you know, what I told you before, we needed to come here because of the situation in the country, I had to leave it halfway. So I couldn't finish that. But when I came to Southwest Kansas, I was able to enroll in our local college mm. and then complete my CNA certification. Cool. Good. And I got to work for a rural hospital here as a CNA and uh, the education department assistant. And I also um, became a CPR instructor by the American Heart Association. You so go. I got to do a awesome. lot. Of- <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, you do a lot. I got to- yeah, so it was a very, very enriching time in my life where I got I got to fulfill some of my desires to complete my education. Yeah. Um, the education in Venezuela is actually very accessible. And some, and in my case, it was free. I was studying for free. Mm-hmm. So um, I really wanted to complete some education here and be able to, you know, fulfill that personal goal. And I feel um, pretty pleased about being able to fulfill that dream of mine. Yeah. But um, then after that is when I got, I got pregnant with Camila, like right after. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. I was going to say, okay, we're going to do a birth story and birth, you know, talk about pregnancy and talk about Camilla's birth and then talk about Camilla some. So yeah, let's go to, let's jump forward to when you kind of found out you were pregnant with her. Yeah. So, um, as any marriage, uh, after a certain time, you want to start out your family, you want to have children. So we thought about, it was time, you know, to start the family or when we feel that our financial situation was a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. So um, the first time I tried to get pregnant, I actually got pregnant that same month okay. with Camila. Same. So, <laughs> That's what happened yeah. with me with Walter. Same. It was like, okay, let's, let's do this. And then you don't expect it to happen the first month, but it does for, for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And I was working here at the hospital and, mm-hmm. Um, um, I didn't mention that, but I, since I speak Spanish and English, I, I serve as an interpreter and okay. a translator. So I work as a medical interpreter there. So I was all the time I carry my, my pager and they will page me for all the departments of the hospital. Okay. So okay. I remember it was like around March 24th of 2018. I was translating or interpreting in a patient's room. Uh-huh. And then I also started feeling like I was going to pass out. Uh-huh. And I actually fell to the floor. I, I <gasps> almost passed out. I mean, I just brought myself down to the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then everything went black. And I said, oh, my God, there is something wrong with me. So the nurses took me down to the ER. And then they ran a pregnancy test. And the pregnancy test came back negative because we, were, we had some suspicions. Why are you fainting? I mean, the first yeah. thought is pregnancy yeah. Yeah. Then they said, well, there might be something wrong with your heart. And I was like, no, really, I, I don't want to have to deal with these. But anyways, yeah. I had some testing done to me, like in, in a cardiogram and in an AKG. Mm-hmm. But everything seemed fine. Like, it didn't, it didn't sound like I had any problems at all. Yeah. So yeah. after that episode, around two weeks, no, week and a half after, I wake up and I say, you know what? I'm going to take a pregnancy test because I still like doubtful about Mm -hmm. if it is really negative or not. And as soon as I took the pregnancy test and it was four days before missing my period, Mm 
Mm. Boom, I, I was pregnant. <laughs> well, there you go. So, yeah, it, show, it just needed a little bit more time to show up. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you take it. I mean, I've heard, you know, some people have symptoms really, really early like that. Like as soon as baby kind of implants against that uterine wall, but you don't get that quite, you know, that positive yet. Um, so that's probably, I, I mean, I feel like I, and some people just know, <laughs> you know, like it, initially you're, you just like, you just feel different. I did with both of these pregnancies, I definitely felt just different. Not that I was having like any overwhelming symptoms, but yeah, you just kind of, just kind of know. So let's, t- all right. So let's, so that was finding out you're pregnant. Um, let's go first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, you know, how did your, did you have a lot of complications, you know, initially, or how did the pregnancy kind of go for you? Well, my pregnancy, as I said, I was working on a hospital, a very fast paced environment, as you know, already that, um, so I, I worked pretty much until 35 weeks and I was, you know, so ready to be out of the hospital. Yeah. But um, something I'm going to mention right now, we're going to talk about later when we talk yeah. about what happened to Camila. Yeah. I work in the, when I worked with the hospital yeah. through my first, second and third trimester, I worked with every department. But one of those departments was radiology. So I really was like into the CT room, x-ray room nuclear med room, uh-huh. um, stress test, uh, ultrasound, MRI. So I really, yeah. I had some, I had exposure to that department and the radiation there. Mm-hmm. That's something that I, I wanted to mention here, but I'll explain a little bit later why I'm mentioning this. Okay. And then I, like, really, I, I actually assisted my OB who was to be my OB interpreting for some Hispanic mamas who were giving birth like three to four times. Ah, so I ah. saw like natural births happening and I, I passed out, but that was before getting pregnant during an epidural too. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. <laughs> Passing just, out all over um, the place. <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> and, um, really I worked as, as hard as I could, as much as I could, uh, uh-huh. I just had a, a lot of vomiting until my second trimester. Yeah, yeah. I had to be on Sofram, uh, an anti-nausea medication that is prescribed by the doctor. Mm-hmm. I I was just not feeling great, honestly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it was rough for me, but I had to keep up with that because, I, you know, you have responsibility. Right. So right. Um, at 35 weeks, um, I got like a stomach bug. So I don't know how I just feel like probably the hand hygiene and the good, you know, procedures that we take into the hospital setting, but the, everyone around me had the flu and I never, ever got the flu like, and never, ever got really sick. Like by 35 weeks, I got a stomach bug and then I was like vomiting and having diarrhea. Hmm. And by then he said I had to be hospitalized because I was getting dehydrated and there the doctor ordered an ultrasound and that is when they noticed that my amniotic fluid levels were really high mm-hmm. and besides that we were not surprised just because my belly was huge yeah like I know I saw pictures she sent me pictures guys and like it's just it's crazy how big you were I'm like and and really that was so painful Lisa. That was yeah. so, so, so painful. And it was like severe. Like if you read read the report, 
Mm-hmm. It says severe polyhydramnios. Yeah. But the doctor was not, I mean, the doctor had the ultrasound checks come and check and do more, more ultrasounds, but they really didn't find anything they thought was weird on the baby. And I am not a diabetic on the opposite side. I tend, my blood sugar tends to go down, same with my blood pressure. So it wasn't me being diabetic or having like preeclampsia right. or something like that, which sometimes that happens when you get a lot of amniotic fluid. Right. Well, really, that, that was not my case. So, so um, really, we didn't know what was going on. But what I can tell you is that I was desperate, desperate to get that baby out of my belly. Oh, I'm sure you're probably so uncomfortable. I mean, I've Gosh. seen poly, um, polyhydramnios, it, like, a, you know, a fair amount. It's not super common, but it's, you know, you see a fair amount of it. And yeah, those moms are just, their skin is so tight and almost like weeping and red and just like, oh, you can just tell how uncomfortable they are, especially towards the end. So I understand that's probably, that was probably not fun at all. Oh my God, that was terrible. I was so miserable. I would yeah. cry at night, couldn't yeah. sleep at all. And, um, I'm a small person. I'm five two and yeah. I, uh, my pregnancy weight or my normal weight is like 135, 136 yeah. pounds. So I'm not a huge person. And that was really hard to deal with, especially the last week I was just literally, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to sure. go to the kitchen and do my own, my own C-section because I am just done. <laughs> I know. Give me a knife. Let me just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So the doctor scheduled me at 39 weeks exactly. It was a okay. Friday okay. for uh, for a C-section with my daughter. Uh-huh. Um, I forgot to say that we found out about her gender, that she was a baby girl through the Harmony test. Okay. That, that is a genetic test that will tell you about the trisomies. If your child has a risk to come with any of those and she tested negative. For those. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we were able to find out at 13 weeks that she was a baby girl. Cool. Okay. So then at, at 39 weeks, um, the C-section was scheduled. And then um, in the morning, I arrived early in the morning at the hospital to get prepared and all that. The anesthesiologist, I had worked with him. So I knew him. He was such a sweet guy and yeah. loving person. So I was really confident. Of course, I was nervous because it was my first experience as a, as a mother. So uh-huh. I knew with no doubt there, there was no way I, I was going to dilate. My belly was so big that my muscles had no way to contract anymore, to span, to contract, to do anything. Right. So it was right. really impossible for me to dilate and have a natural birth. Probably with both of us could have, could have passed away during birth. Right. If, if they have induced me. So I think the C-section was the best option. Oh, for sure. For me. Especially if you were severe, severe polyhydramnios. Yeah, that's almost a, a no question. Yes. And I may say, as a mama, I that disappointed me a little bit because yeah, I had yeah, seen so yeah. many natural births, like live yeah. natural births at the hospital and help these mamas discharge babies Right, I also right. help uh, mamas interpret for like emergency flights where babies were flown out of the hospital. Right. 
in um, I, I got to participate in every step of the process. So I had a, expectations for myself. Yeah. You know, and it was a little bit hard to have to give up those expectations. But I mean, of course, you do anything you have to do to keep your baby and yourself safe. That's right. If that was a safe, the safest option, of course, that I, well, that's what I, I, I had to do. So right. then uh, they got me ready and then they got my husband ready too. Um, I had the blessing to be able to have my mother next to me. Oh, good. So I didn't have my mama during my pregnancy. It was only my husband and I, and we don't uh-huh. have a family here in town, uh-huh. any family members. So I was able my I was able to get my mama to come for five to six months oh, to be with me. But that was by the end of the pregnancy because her visa had a certain time that she was allowed to be here. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we needed to respect that, and so we kind of programmed it, d- her to come here by a time that where I really, really, really needed the most yeah. help and support. So that worked out. She came, and then she was with me there. She helped me a lot the last weeks. She was there, um, and my husband got ready. They dressed him up, and then he went into the OR with me and with the doctors. So then they tried to put my epidural, and I don't know why, but when the doctor put my epidural, I said it was going to hurt, honestly, but it didn't hurt at all. Okay. I don't know okay. if you have heard about other women that say they, they hurt when the epidural is put in place, but yeah. mine didn't didn't hurt at all. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's good. Yeah. Sometimes people say initially that the lidocaine hurts, you know, the stinging hurts, but then after that, it's just kind of pressure, but that's good. You didn't have too much pain at all. No, not really. But the problem after that was that it didn't numb me. So Uh, I had like a tingling sensation. Maybe that's why it didn't didn't hurt because I didn't do it right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably why. Yeah, uh, I had a tingling sensation all over my legs and the half, the lower half of my body. Mm-hmm. But it didn't numb me. The doctor was going to start cutting, and I say, "Doctor, I can feel everything." Yeah, yikes! <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, please, <laughs> can you stop?" And then the, they said, "Okay, it's going to be fine." They put they put a mask over my face, and then I was gone. <laughs> okay. So they put you under general anesthesia. I was wondering with your, st- with your story that you sent me, yeah, that you, I remember you saying you woke up and I was like, oh, she must've had some kind of complication with her spinal her epidural, um, to where they have to put you asleep. And you know, that is an indication if it doesn't work, that's why they test you and make sure that they don't cut, you know, they don't start the surgery without, uh, making sure that you, you really truly can't feel anything because that doesn't sound fun to have surgery. <laughs> surgery with, uh, out any numbing medication. So that's what I was wondering. So they put you under, yeah, general anesthesia and you were, you were out. Yeah, I was out and, and well, I was out and not prepared to what was going to happen after. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that. Yeah. So this is, I suppose this is a part called my birth story. (laughs) Yeah. Or after Camila was born. Yeah. Um, so for, for, for the people who are listening, uh, we decided to name our baby girl Camila. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to refer to her now with her name, Camila. And so when I wake up from the anesthesia, I feel like really someone told me, wake up. Like I didn't wake mm-hmm. up like some women 
would wake up and they're still sleepy and, you know, like more out than, you know, conscious. I was like, literally like, I'm here. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I go, I I open my eyes and I I feel like I sense something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And when I open my eyes and I see around, I, I don't see anyone. And I remember them telling me that uh, if the baby was okay, when I woke up from the C-section, the baby would be next to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The baby would be present in the room, same with my family, where none of them were there. And I immediately knew that something was wrong. Yeah. So I started, you know, pressing the light, the call button, like, where are you? <laughs> where is everyone? Right. And the first person who came into the room was my husband. And I mean when you're married, you know, your partner, you know, when something is wrong too. So when I look at his face, I knew something was really wrong. And, um, that's when he tells me, Camila is going to be taken to another hospital. Mm -hmm. And I say, why, what, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. He looks and he says, it looks like there's something wrong with his, her lungs and, and her, and, and she can breathe. She not, she cannot breathe very well. Yeah. I'm like, Okay, but is, is it something like something I should worry about? What is going on? Right. That kind of got, got me off guard, of course, because you don't expect things like that to happen. And then after that, the doctor comes in and then the pediatrician comes in. And it looks like when I wake woke, woke up, it's been like already three hours after she was born. Mm-hmm. And the pediatrician spent the whole time trying to have her not to go into respiratory arrest. Oh, gosh. So she says, I feel there's something going on with her heart and her lungs. Mm -hmm. But I cannot tell because this is a rural hospital. We need to send her to Wichita, Kansas, which is three hours away. So I say, "Um, okay. And and you know what's what's the interesting part, Lisa, that I remember, like, weeks before interpreting Mm -hmm. for a couple whose child was going to be like um, flown to, to the, to the hospital, to another hospital, to the NICU. And I remember like being pregnant with Camila and telling God, please, God, don't let me go through this. Bless my baby. Protect her from this. Because I, I I don't know how, how, how will I feel about something like this happening to us? Well, sure enough. (laughs) And just totally unexpected too. It's not a a lot of, I think a lot of moms, not a lot, but some moms, they know during their pregnancy, these things come up and they, and you know, the doctors say, oh, this is going on with your baby. You may expect this to happen. You may expect that to happen. But for you, this is, this was totally unexpected. And I think that that was just, I mean, like, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine just, you know, thinking that you're going to wake up and everything's fine. Baby's going to be right there. And then all of a sudden, all of this, you know, this, this all changes. Well, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. When I like, as I'm counting my story, I can tell you and for sure that the hardest part about all that have happened to us with Camila was the unexpected because right. even, you know, the outcome of our story was expected to us because we were told that that was going to happen. Right. The outcome right. that I will talk about, I, I will talk about that later. Right. Um, but this was totally unexpected. Like right. 
that was my dream of how motherhood was going to look like from day one broken. Yeah. And, yeah. and you have expectations, you know, because you, you go to social media and you only see like gender reveals that look awesome. Right. All the you happy stuff. All the happy stuff. Right. All the perfect. But then we don't get to see very often these mamas like me that don't get to fulfill their dreams as they dream them. Every time I see these, I, I praise God and I say, thank you, God, that these family was able to live their dream as they dreamed them. You know, right. they were able to fulfill their dreams with the birth of their child. It was a natural bird or a water bird yeah. or, you know, and, yeah. and I, I, I feel happy for them. Because yeah. that, that is how every experience should be for every mama. But the hard part is like when, when your doctor or your medical team doesn't help you get ready to face these things. Because I know that the diagnosis my daughter has, and I will also talk about that here in a second, um, it wasn't preventable. Yeah. It was yeah. something that it, she, she was formed that way Mm -hmm. I cannot prevent her her illness her sickness or whatever is going on with her but I could prevent how I was going to manage the trauma you know that was preventable I could plan where to give birth under that condition right I could plan those things and be less traumatic and 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 the toll not to be that bad on me on my body Mm -hmm. So I think that's the difference. And I think you, you have said very well. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally agree. All right. So let's, so we're getting, I guess you're just now, now told that she's getting flown out. How long did you stay in the rural hospital before you were able to go see her? Well, I uh, stayed there. I was, I gave birth on a Friday. Uh Uh-huh. And I was discharged on a Sunday, but she was taken to this hospital in Kansas and that Friday afternoon right. without any guarantees that she would survive the flight because that, you know, yeah, that is also another, another complicated, you know, situation, you know, yeah. to, to get a baby to be safe during that type of, you know, situation. Get them to be stable. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Then uh, she gets there. I am hospitalized that Saturday morning, I believe. Uh, they gave me a link for the NICU. And while I was in my bed in my room at the hospital, I, I had the nurses pull her up in the computer. So okay. I could see her camera in the NICU and kind of sleep with her somehow. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they would tell me, you need to pump. You need to pump to, to increase your supply. And yeah. I would say, <laughs> I have no energy to pump right now. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I'm broken. I understand what you guys are telling me because it is important that yeah. I cannot pump right now. I, I don't have the the ability to to be able to concentrate on that. But regardless, I tried. I tried. She, um, the doctor, the, the cardiologist called me from the, the NICU here in Kansas. And he said yeah. that she had truncus arteriosis possibly. And she needed like a very, very... Um, a, a type of medical attention that really they were not able to to bring to give her because it was really complicated. She yeah. needs to go to Colorado. Yeah. So and I was like, but she just got there. Like she's gonna get to another flight. Yeah. 
Well, sure enough, that night she got into another flight. Of course, I'm going to give her mission. But actually, when they called me that she needed to go to Colorado, my husband was on the way to go to the, the hospital, like a three hours away. He was like an hour and a half. The other one, like the one that she was already at. Uh-huh. And okay. then I had to call him and say, like, turn around and come back because yeah. this is yeah. not going to this is not going to happen right now. I think you have to wait until I am discharged. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have to get either a car or a plane and get there as soon as we can. Yeah. So my anxiety levels were like to the roof because as a new mother, you just want your baby next to you and protect yeah. your baby. And then your baby smiles away from you. Yeah. And that was really hard. And then um, they they called me that she made it safely to the children's in, in Colorado, Children's Hospital of Colorado. And then after that, um, I was discharged on Sunday with really no complications. I was doing fine. I really didn't have any complications throughout okay. my okay. C-section. Okay. So um, my, my hemoglobin was low, but not like super low. But I, I usually am a person who keeps good iron levels. And when it go, goes down, it really knocks me out. Yeah. So yeah. It was, I, I felt like not really awesome at that time. <laughs> Maybe that's why you were passing out before too. You had some low iron or something. That'll make No, I usually, my, my blood pressure runs low. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Not really. I, I have a, a wonderful hemoglobin. It's just my my blood pressure. Your blood pressure. But gotcha. um, after that, well, I'm, I am discharged as a Sunday afternoon, and then I asked the doctor. I said, "Doctor, can can I take a flight to to Denver, Colorado? I really need to know if I can do this because, because I don't know what's better for me. I need safe time. I need to get to her." Yeah. And said, yeah, you can take a flight, but just got to be careful with clots. Right. Right. Clots, clots. Um, and then just come, like, give yourself Monday and come and uh, give yourself, like, Sunday to Monday. Uh-huh. Like, I'm, I'm a, I am able to get your staples out. So Gosh. my staples were taken out that Monday, and I had this section on Friday. And, and then on Tuesday at five in the morning, I was on a plane and it was a small size plane because the, the, the rural airport here, the local airport had just opened with United a flight to Denver. Okay. That was like super new. There were no flights. Wow. And they like a few months before they started flying to Denver. So they needed to do a stop in Pueblo, Colorado. And then I got into the plane and I can tell you that I don't know how I didn't pass out or pass the way. I was like, my, my C-section hurt. I was bleeding. I was nauseous. I, my blood pressure was low. I felt like panicky. I had anxiety. And really I had my husband just sitting next to me the entire flight. It was, there was a lot of turbulence that it was like a roller coaster that little plane was oh my god and I just told my husband just sing to me sing to me in my ear yeah and he passed that entire hour singing to me and that's how I made it oh the airport so yeah I was wearing like a uh like um 
may I say diaper or may I say yeah um, like it depends yeah like it depends I was yeah. wearing one of those because yeah. well you already know how yeah, the bleed bleeding so much yes so I got one of those on and and we got to Colorado at 7 30 in the morning I remember and my daughter had passed one two around four to five days already by herself mm-hmm. and really I took that flight to my risk you know and yeah. I felt exhausted already by 7 30 in the morning and we were like we headed to the car rental and then we headed to the hospital mm-hmm. and then when we headed to the hospital we stopped real quick and, and get something to eat for me because I was not doing fine and then we head to the, the CICU my daughter was not in the NICU my daughter was in the cardiac ICU. Mm. Uh, so we head to the cardiac ICU. And um, so before I continue, I need to mention that these hospitals give you the chance to call your your loved one. So I would call my daughter in the meantime. And like during those four days, I would call her whatever, whatever she was and have the nurse with the phone and speaker. And I would talk to her. And I would say to her and I would like, like every two to three hours I was calling for updates. Yeah. So really that was all I could do because there was nothing else I could do more than what I was already doing. So um, when I get to the hospital room, I, I just, I just lost it. Yeah, I'm sure. After that long. Yeah. I just, I just really lost it. Because she was so, and I'm sorry about crying, but it's it okay. impossible. It's okay. Not to bring that memory in and not to cry because she was so peacefully sleeping. Yeah. Like, she was waiting for me. Mm-hmm. She was like, Mama, I was, I was waiting for you. And I get there and I just cry and cry and cry and cry because I was just holding it. And I cry and I cry and I cry. And I wanted to, you know, go there and start, like, being with her. Does she need a diaper change? I want to do it. But then all of a sudden, I started feeling bad. And they took my blood pressure, and it started to rise, Mm. which has never happened before to me. So I had to be taken to the emergency downstairs in the children's hospital to to the pediatric. And then my blood pressure was rising. So then they, they put me on an ambulance and, and took me to uh, the adult emergency and they started running tests to make sure I didn't have a clot. Mm-hmm. So thanks God that the clot came back. The clot test, the, the CT, they they take my brain and my lungs. Uh, it came back negative. So there was mm-hmm. no concerns there. Good, but I was good. my blood pressure was rising like it was like I remember seeing on the screen like 180 over 90. Oh gosh. And that's never happened to me ever in my life. So I didn't know if it was because of the anesthesia, like a reaction to the anesthesia after or the panic that I was feeling, or mm-hmm. or my body was shocked for you know so many stressors around me. I cannot really tell because they couldn't tell either. So, and I started like, um, after the contrast from the CT, I started shaking a lot. So it was, it was a crappy day. It was terrible. Of course, after, 
yeah, after that, I couldn't come back to the, her room. I had to go um, to the place that we were staying. And then I want to emphasize in here that we were given the opportunity to stay at the Ronald McDonald House in Aurora, Colorado. And okay. and I, I just got to say that I call that place a house of God. Oh. And I call it that place because I... It is so amazing what they are doing for families. I mean, they they gave us a place to stay. The volunteers prepared food for us. They, They gave us, you know, they provided everything we needed to be able to be there for our daughter. So after they discharged me from the emergency room, I went to run McDonald's to get some rest. I still had a really not so good night. And my mother was there supporting me. Yeah. My husband went back to see the baby. And, and I don't remember if he stayed with Camila. But uh, then in the morning, I went to the hospital feeling better. Mm-hmm. And then when I get there, I got to hold her for the first time Aww. after around six days since she was born. Aww. And that was the best feeling in the world. Oh, I'm sure. After that that long and like that journey, you know, like just you had to go, she had to go to two different hospitals and then you had to go on this plane and you had to go through all of this medical stuff and then like finally getting to hold her. Oh, after six days, I can't imagine. And see, the frustrating part is that these logistics and what I was telling you before, this this was so preventable, you know, with my medic, with the, the prenatal care that I received. I, I can tell that it was not the best because this doctor had so many patients that I don't feel like he had the opportunity to dedicate the time that I needed. Right. And I kept asking, why my belly so big? And he kept saying it was normal. Oh. So, um, and then we're in a rural town. So, you know, the, 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 the capacity of this, the, the, the ultrasound uh, machines and the the specialists they have available is not really good unless they send you out for yeah. for somewhere else to check you out. So that was a part that I continue to work on, you know, to mm-hmm. to work on healing because mm-hmm. um, I know that that part of the trauma was somehow preventable, mm-hmm. but at the same time I understand that God allows us to go through things for a reason that we may not understand, but I always feel like it needs to have a purpose, to have a purpose in your heart. You know, if it's suffering doesn't, doesn't help other, another people or help other, other ones around you and helps yourself to be a better person, the suffering is purposeless. Mm -hmm. So I hope that the mamas or the families that are hearing us today can think about my words and advocate for themselves. That's right. Cause that is so, so important. And that's what I preach to that advocacy. Ugh, you got to be able to advocate for yourself. It is, I mean, it, it truly can make life or death, you know, I mean, like a, such, such a difference in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then what I'm going to tell you next about Camila's story is going to, it's going to be the part where I really want to emphasize the advocacy I had for my daughter. Yeah. So, um, that same day we got the doctor coming into the room and tell us 
we know what your daughter has from the CT scan that we were run yesterday. Okay. And we said, okay, and they said, you need to sit down. So my husband and I, of course, were <laughs> yeah. so nervous. Enough already and like, okay. And then, and then she says, it was a, it was a, um, a female a doctor. And then uh, she, she says, your daughter has tetralogy of a lot mm-hmm. with pulmonary atresia and mapkes. And I was like, uh-huh, like, what does this mean? Yeah. So this means that your daughter has a heart defect, but more than a heart defect, her lungs, okay. the, the blood supply to her lungs is very complicated. Right. What is going on is that your daughter doesn't have a pulmonary artery. She only has her aorta, and from that aorta, she developed an alternative way to bring blood to her lungs. Mm-hmm. And it basically looks like the branches of a tree, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like like the normal person. You know, it looks like whatever her body wanted to do, right? To supply her lungs with blood. So those arteries that she developed, kind of. Kind of like if someone had drawn them, like a child had drawn them into her lungs. Mm-hmm. Those arteries are very complicated. They usually don't grow with her and she needs a surgery to be able to survive. Gotcha. Oh. Then there is really a handful of surgeons probably in the U.S. or in the world that can perform the surgery that she needs. Oh, wow. Around 2% of the, all the tetralogy of a lots that we see are like the one that your daughter has. Mm. And we basically only have one surgeon that might be willing to do her surgery. Mm-hmm. And then after that, she says, this type of pathology and the faces, or faces that she has, and I believe that word refers to how her face looks like, like her nose, her eyes, mm-hmm. matches a lot the description of a genetic syndrome that usually goes along with this type of pathology. And the genetic syndrome is the George syndrome or 22Q, 11.2, deletion syndrome. And the word deletion means that she's missing a part of her chromosome number 22. Okay. That's why these children are called 22Q or 22 cuties, because they're missing a part of their chromosome number 22. And what can happen during this genetic syndrome, which I want to I wanna share with uh, your uh, listeners here, some facts about these, because this is going to be very surprising to some of them. Yeah. So the George syndrome, it is the second com- most common genetic syndrome after Down syndrome. How about that? Wow. I didn't, I mean, I've actually never even heard of that before. That That's great. And, and going back to when you were talking about how you had the harmony test initially when in your first trimester, that's not something that, to, I mean, do they even scream? They must scream for that if it's so common and it, and did it come back negative? Well, I think that's something that needs to be reformed for the healthcare yeah. system, honestly. Yeah. Uh, with this pregnancy, uh, with my actual pregnancy that I will talk about a little bit later, yeah. this pregnancy, I ask that they do the harmony test, but they need to add their request okay. or that part of the your syndrome. But they usually test for the three trisomies. Yeah. And yeah. one of those three trisomies is Down syndrome. Yeah. 
Yeah. So for this time, I had to request it. I say, hey, I had a daughter with this. <laughs> Could you please right. add it into my test? Right. And or in remind like advocating for myself there and for my child. And so the day and they it came back low risk. Okay. Like for right. like for any other pregnant women. Right. Like, okay. Good. Yeah. So for the George syndrome, it is as common as one. First, that these first statistics, I think they're old now, but it was as common as one every four to five thousand births. Wow. But now it is as common as, as common as one every one thousand. Wow. Yes. So what what happens with that is like it can happen in two ways. You can have a deletion like my daughter when when you have a genetic syndrome and you have a deletion, it means you are missing a chromosome a pair of chromosomes or a part of a chromosome, that is the most severe form you will have of that disease or that illness. Then if you have a duplication, if you have an extra part or an extra chromosome, it's actually not as severe. Okay. So, but that my daughter had a deletion. So okay. it was okay. super severe form of this genetic syndrome. Interesting. 22Q okay. varies, varies a lot. So some children can only have like epilepsy or a developmental disabilities, uh-huh. such okay. as autism, and they their DeGeorge syndrome goes undetected. Because okay. Okay. Uh, in, in relationship with the Down syndrome, um, Down syndrome, they have faces. You know, like Down syndrome right. children right. look alike, but DeGeorge syndrome children they can look alike but sometimes they don't look like other cases okay they only have a developmental disability or epilepsy or a mild heart problem but not something very or a feeling difficulty but they they are not all together so it is hard to detect in some children that they don't show as many um of many features of like these characteristics. Yeah. Like characteristics. characteristics. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. My daughter had them all like a combo. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> My poor baby girl, she had a, a, every, every characteristic of this syndrome. So after three weeks they, they took a blood sample. And after three weeks, she got uh, a positive test result for the George syndrome. Okay. So okay. they gave us a little more information about the future. We got, multiple specialities visiting us at the ICU and one of them was the genetics clinic and they explained to us that with the George syndrome she had uh, her parathyroid underdeveloped she needed calcium replacement she had feeding difficulties so she these children can have a cleft palate or uh, or, or the 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 problem with the lip, where the yeah. I don't remember the name. If you can help me there, but I don't remember the name. It's just a lip, yeah. Uh-huh. I, um, I think it's just they, a, yeah, a cleft in a lip in a lip. Uh huh. And then they can have uh, feeding difficulties where they cannot swallow. They have a very very belopharyngeal insufficiency, which is the inability to have to to swallow because their muscle tone in their muscles in their mouth is so weak. And then um, have like food intolerances, epilepsy, convulsions, uh, the heart defect, the lung defect. So she had them all really. So after like two months in the hospital, two months, you say two months and you, you think it is, oh my God, forever. And it actually feels like forever. 
sure. And after two months, they said, well, she cannot eat by mouth. She's had several um, NG tubes, the tubes that go down the, uh -huh. the nose to feed her, but they come out all the time. Yeah. So we need to think about a long-term solution and we're proposing a GJ tooth. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, we're gonna hear about that and we're gonna get information and let's do whatever she has to do to be able to to grow and yeah. to get big for her surgery. Yeah. So she, she got her GJ tube and since she was so little, they couldn't do a normal J tube. A J-tube is a tube that goes into the intestine. Uh -huh. But if they do a heart tube, that can perforate her intestine. So they, that part, they they cut a part of an NG tube and put it in on her tummy okay. inside. Well, that that flipped back as soon as she left the OR oh, oh to gosh. her stomach. Yeah. She couldn't swallow or have anything in her tummy because she would aspirate and get pneumonia. Yeah. So... After that, she was put placed on TPN and lipids, which is nutrition to her uh, IV for children that stay in a hospital for a long time. They get something called a peak line, which is an IV that can stay for a long time. Mm -hmm. And she got a peak line and they will feed her through there. But then she started getting sick after a couple of weeks because, I mean, that was get, making her liver sick. Yeah. So at that point, Lizzo, can you imagine how exhausted it was? I mean, she's been through so many different procedures. Like that's that's crazy. So what happened with the with the um? Did they ever re try and redo the surgery to put the J tube in? Well, what happened there was that, as I said, I was at a point where I was desperate, and what I did. Honestly, and I'm going to be 100% honest because I don't want to be any less than that if I want to help other moms advocate, yeah. is I prayed, Lisa. I yeah. went into my knees and I prayed and I said, oh, sure. God, I don't know what to do with my daughter. The medical team proposed this surgery. They, they didn't give me options. They said, this is the surgery she needs. Yeah. And, I, and I trust them and I let them do that. But then it didn't work and they took her for a second time under anesthesia to put it back in. Right. And it didn't work. So I thought that there was a piece that was missing. Mm -hmm. And after working in a hospital, having some medical knowledge, I'm no doctor or no um, yeah. RN, but I am a mother who has some medical experience, but, be, but I have the, the will to fight for the life of my baby. So I went down into my knees and I said, God, I don't know what to do. Can you please show me? Mm -hmm. Show me what, what do I need to do for my daughter? And you won't believe what happened next. Mm -hmm. What happened next was that I opened my Instagram and it was feeding tube awareness week. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> it was feeding tube awareness week. And then I get into the hashtag and I thought I, 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 there's a mama from my hometown that lives here that also has a medically complex child who whose genetic syndrome is even more rare than my daughter's. And he has a G2. So she started talking about that and mentioning other mamas who went through these procedures with their children. And I, and wow. I sent her a DM or a private message and I say, hey, can you 
help me here. I'm desperate. My daughter is under this condition. This is what happened. And she says, well, my son got a Nissan fundal duplication, which is basically okay. an anti-reflux surgery. So, you know, that reflux doesn't go back into her throat and she does, and he doesn't aspirate. And then they did a direct G-tube to the stomach. They okay. didn't mess up with the, the gut, with the intestines. And I said, how can I find out about this? And she said, I'm going to put you in contact with a mama I know who had the same problem she had. Okay. She put me in contact with this mama. Wow. Her name Barbara. And I want to thank you, her, for calling me and, and, and bring, bringing light to my life. She talked to me about her son uh-huh. and what had happened to her. After she talked to me, I sat down, I researched, and I started up, uh, doing observations with my daughter. I started seeing how her behavior was with food, with medications, mm-hmm. with like, I kind of put my logic into place. And I said, this Nissan and this YouTube, this is what my daughter needs to be successful and gain weight and be yeah. okay. Well, the GI team never suggested that to me. And I decided to open a case in the hospital and and put a formal complaint against the team and propose mm-hmm. propose the surgery. And I was advocating every week and talking during rounds uh, because doctors in ICU do rounds every morning and they talk about the next steps with the child. Right. And then right. if you get to be there, you participate. So I was in rounds every morning and I was advocating to have GI come back with me and talk to me and I proposed this surgery and I told the doctors why I thought she needed it that yeah and it took them around three weeks until I lost patience and decide that really the only option she had left to be able to thrive was that option yeah and I said God I'm going all the way in for this because you you showed me what she needed and I'm going to give consent for this yeah but not to not take any adrenaline out of the issue, the day she had her surgery schedule, I had a dream the night before when he was telling me she has an infection. Oh. And I say, what? Does she have an infection? But she's looking great today. <laughs> and well, the next morning, she started acting like she had an infection. She was, her oxygen levels were, were dropping. Her heart rate was going up. She was fussy. And I tell the anesthesiologist, can you run some like a CBC, like a complete blood count before we do this surgery today, please? Can you yeah. do an x-ray of her lungs? Well, her white count was 30,000 oh, wow. that morning. It means that she had an infection Yeah. the morning of the surgery. Oh. So that surgery was postponed and she was um, oh. treated for that. And which she was treated for multiple infections because the George syndrome also affects the immune system. And finally we're able to schedule the surgery and she got a surgery done. Well, after that surgery, Liesl, she was another child. Really? She gained so much weight. She grew. How old was she at this point? I'm just trying to get my timeline right. Uh, three months. Three months. Okay. So her her GJ was around two months old, and this was around three, three and a half. Okay. So after that, she started like getting big and big and big, tolerating feeds, getting her. She got to full feeds. Like she got to eat 
all the or take all the milk that she needed. I gotta mention that I I, I need I, I need to mention that I was pumping for the first three months and she was getting my milk. Oh, okay, well, good. When she she got her NG too, so she was getting my milk. But there was a point that I was really honestly I started feeling depressed. Yeah. To have to be connected to a pump all the time and not being able to have that bond with her. Yeah. So I started producing less and less milk. And then I eventually, by three months, decided to give up. Yeah. And I don't beat myself up for that, honestly. Yeah. And I, I don't think any mama should. But my situation was really, really stressful. And that affects, I believe that affects your milk supply. Oh, 100% and, does. And any sort of stress. And this is extreme stress that you were, you know, uh, extreme not only extreme, but, you know, circumstantial, like very, very odd stress, right? Like most moms go through stress after they have a baby, but this is a different type of stress. Yeah. And well, after that, Lisa, the the other things that my daughter um, had a hole between the lower chambers of her heart. So her heart, her blood mixed a lot, the oxygenated and deoxygenated. So she needed transfusions on a, on a weekly or basis or every two weeks. And I really had to advocate for that because sometimes I already knew the signs. I knew when her hermetocrit uh, touched a certain level yeah. or when she was her oxygen levels were going down so much. Her oxygen levels will drop as much as 50. Wow. Six, 60. Wow. Her, her normal was like 80. Oh, so... Wow. Um, she needed transfusions and I want to thank you ev- to like say thank you to every person who has ever donated blood because yeah. you guys don't know how much it makes such a difference people think it doesn't but it makes such a difference it's, but you know you know firsthand I know firsthand my daughter had so many transfusions and yeah how many people had to go and make the effort to donate their blood to help my child I just want to say thank you. I don't know you, but I say thank you. And I encourage you to continue to do that. And then she needed multiple transfusions. But sometimes I I feel like I knew when she needed things because I was her mother and I was with her all the time. But like every time, you know, there was change in the shift with the nurse or with the doctor or with the medical team in general, because they're human beings that need to go home and sleep and, you know, be with their families. Mm -hmm. There was a, there was loss of information. Yeah. So um, that had that made me have to you know, all the time be in a defensive mood, in a defensive way. Right. Um, I gotta say that overall, the care that my daughter received, uh, that care was awesome. Honestly, yeah. I had to advocate a lot because, of course. It doesn't matter in what hospital you are. You always have to advocate for your child because you are the one leading with with them, spending time with them. You can notice things that other people cannot notice. So that's your job. But that doesn't mean the medical team was not doing their jobs. They were doing a great job. I got to meet the most amazing nurses. Uh, But I also unfortunately had to report some others that – because of lacking of training and experience, wouldn't wouldn't do good to my daughter. But I knew it wasn't a bad intention. It was just lack of. But I didn't let that pass because I knew there was a, um, a department at the hospital called patient advocates. 
and they will come hear my story and investigate. Yeah, that's what they're there for. Uh-huh. So I, I use that because I feel like if my daughter doesn't get to go home, I need to do this for the other children who are coming to this hospital. Right. Right. So the things are wrong are corrected and these children doesn't go through these. So we went through multiple things, but to start like summarizing the process now, um, at five months old, five months after being in the hospital, Mm -hmm. um, our surgeon decided that he was going to do this surgery and it was a 20 hour open heart and lung surgery. Gosh. And there was no, no guarantees that she was going to survive that, but she was so she was a fighter. Uh, we decided when when we knew about when we learned about her condition that we were gonna give her the best we could. The best means yeah. our time, our dedication. We got all of her things to the hospital. We prepared her room. We spent time with her. We would sing songs to her all the time. Get her right. balloons. Like give her the, the the only quality of life that we could provide for a child under her condition. Because yeah, my yeah. mama's heart, I knew, uh, I knew that eventually she was going to have to go to heaven. Yeah. But I didn't know it was going to be this. It was going to be this soon. So yeah. um, at five months old, two, two days away from Mother's Day and three days away from her scheduled surgery, she went into cardiac and respiratory arrest while getting her respiratory treatments because she needed them constantly. She had a problem where, you know, with when I mentioned the velopharyngeal insufficiency where mm-hmm. she wasn't able to swallow, mm-hmm. she wasn't able to manage her secretions or her saliva or her um, her buggers, any of yeah. that. She wasn't yeah. able to manage that. Right. So she needed aspiration, and that made her really, really mad. Aww. So the last couple of weeks, I was telling the medical team, I feel she, we need to speed up the surgery because she's not tolerating care. And I noticed that giving her a bath, changing her diaper, she would turn blue, she would desaturate. So I would say, I feel like she doesn't have enough time. I mean, she has grown so much. Like the positive thing, she has grown so much, but she's not tolerating care. So I, I am afraid that she doesn't make it through the surgery if she gets really mad one day. Well, sure enough, I went for to run a McDonald's house for dinner, which I, I, I had, a, I had her on a sleep schedule in the ICU. Mm-hmm. That was a huge win. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I was able to go for dinner for one hour and then come back to her. Then on my way back, I see all these people in her room and then I knew something was wrong. So my husband and I, we rush into her room and then she was going into cardiac and respiratory arrest. She gave us a couple of scares during her five-month hospital stay, but it yeah, never looked yeah. like that in the screen. Yeah, he, everything yeah. was zero, like zero, zero, zero oxygen, zero, palpi- uh, zero palpitations, zero. And I, and I, and until that moment, I told my husband, she's she's sleeping right now. Yeah. And I, the only thing I, I told God was, I will be done. I mean, if. This is what you want. Who am I to stop you? Yeah. This is what you want to do. This is her time. Then this is her time. Right. I was given the option to put her in ECMO. Mm -hmm. But you got to evaluate every situation differently. And the medical parents, especially the hard mamas, know what ECMO is. It's basically a machine that 
does your breathing and does your yeah, does uh, everything everything for you you are just connected to machine and that's and actually how that machine looks and how your child looks under that machine is super traumatic it's it is, it's very scary i've seen the good amount of patient when I, and throughout my rotations and stuff on ECMO and it, it is it's very traumatic for the family and just yeah just does not even make them look like a person yeah and and see my daughter was under sedation and under different like morphine deloaded yeah. different medications to when she was intubated and she yeah. would resist them we have to increase all the time the amounts I don't know if it had to do with her metabolism, how she, yeah, you know, how much she tolerates in regards to those medications, but she was always uncomfortable. Yeah. So that was heartbreaking to me. And I said, she has to be in ECMO. She has to be under those medications. If she doesn't respond them, then she will be able to feel discomfort and pain. And she doesn't have a voice to tell me she's feeling that. Yeah. So, and then, I, and, and, and then, you know, when you're put into ECMO, there is you know the chances you survive that is they are very low right. so when she was we talked to her medical team and they we all agreed that if she got into a point that she got there mm-hmm. we would not choose ECMO neither her medical team was advising that neither we felt as parents that was the best option in her a specific and individual case right. so when she was leaving um I just prayed and lifted my hands and my husband did that. And we say, God, we, we, deliver, we give her to you. I mean, at the end of the day, she came from you. Mm-hmm. So um, I felt like a weight over my chest and it, it was a weird feeling that wouldn't let me feel pain at that moment. I felt like a, like some, some, there was like a, a weight over my chest. Yeah. There was no feelings, just a weight over my chest. And then the doctor came and stopped all the resuscitation attempts and I just got into the room and I said I love you mama I love you just go in peace you know it's your time go in peace I love you I love you mama I love you so much and then I held her for a last time that night and really that was, you know, the hardest thing that you could ever do is just returning a child to heaven, a child of yours to heaven. That, that is the hardest thing you could ever do in your life. Seems so unfair, right? <laughs> it, it, yes, it does. It it really, truly does. It's, it's really, I mean, if, if, we, if we're honest, it just, just feels so unfair. But... There was no way to prevent that. Um, We all have an expiration date. Some of us will go, we'll live a plentiful and long life. Some of us won't won't do that. And and she, that was her her journey. So after that, after that, we came back to Kansas. and, And five weeks after she passed away. I joined this uh, non-for-profit organization that had a position open um, that fit very well my my profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband didn't push me to go to work, but he thought that I would be good for me because yeah. you know staying yeah. um, 
at home after all that. Wow, it's hard. Oh, yeah. It's, a lot of people just have to keep themselves busy with something. So that was a good recommendation on, on his Yeah, part. so I joined this place and and I started going to see children and mamas into their homes. Yeah. Interpreting for lactation consultants, for uh, physical oh, therapy, occupational therapies. But I wanted to honor her memory because we serve people with disabilities and delays yeah. in development. And, and some, some of the children we see were, were once in that unit too because we're um, five hours away from Colorado. And, but the hard part, Lisa, was that I had to see children on a daily basis and have to see their mamas snuggling them, yeah. kissing them, feeding them. And I just felt neglected by God. Yeah. I have no other way to say it. That's yeah. how I felt in a daily basis for a long time. Yeah. Really, really bad. Really, really bad. And you say, but why, Maria? Or why do you continue to be in that place if you felt that way? Right. And my question would be, I don't know. I just felt that I needed to be there. Right. I, I, I don't know if uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave the place, neither... If I tried to, or if I wanted to, I don't know why I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And you just felt like it was your calling. You just felt like you, that's where you needed to be. Yes. At that point. Yeah. But I came home brokenhearted yeah. all the time into a deep depression. And, and then my husband, he's such a wonderful guy. I just got to give him some great Aww. say that he has been the person that keeps me on because you know, men grieve differently. Men grieve yes, differently. Yes, absolutely. They have a more rational way to think, uh, a less emotional way, so they can see things more clearly than we women can because we have, you know, the emotional part, the trauma and the hormones because, right. you know, it's a lot going on. But he was able to bring me back where to, to my center, to where I needed to be. So as a couple, we have to go to therapy, I I went to therapy myself. I've been going to therapy and continue to go to therapy. Yeah, that's to good. work. I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Yeah, I mean, but that is no surprise. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, gosh, look at what you went through. I, but that's very appropriate diagnosis, I'm sure. Yeah. So um, after that, um, we decided also to enroll in the gym. And I can tell you that the the if we add all those interventions like going to the gym, going to therapy, yeah. I started going to a different church and getting support from there. Yeah, uh, having my husband on board and having uh, my mother on board too. And my mother and father-in-law were here for quite some time, yeah. but my mother had to leave. Um, having that support system has allowed me to flourish from my tragedy. So I feel like these, all these mamas that are grieving children, because I don't feel that I'm, that my pain is greater than any other mama. Because there are mamas who have had like, uh, uh, they have had a miscarriage or they have had a stillborn or they have had the same like medically complex child that dies not as a baby, but later as a, uh, as a teenager Right, or during right. a, like an accident or something that they feel it was preventable as well. 
um, I just want to say to all these mamas that they need to fight to flourish. And this is a this is a phrase that I read in a book from a mother who lost a child. Her name is Jenny Lusco. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to fight to flourish because our children were no less than great fighters while they, they were alive. That's right. And I we need to make, I love that. Fight to flourish. Yeah. I think about every day since I heard that phrase, I cannot take it out of my head. Mm-hmm. I think about that. I have really bad days where I'm just crying in my car. I have really good days where it seems like nothing has happened. But I just have learned to give myself some grace. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've been through a lot. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I wish anyone goes through all these. But you need to fight to flourish because you didn't go through all this pain to stay where you are. You right. went through this pain to fight to flourish and you're a seed that what you were put on a ground and that ground was dark and that soil was so so difficult mm-hmm. so hard but then you started putting roots and now you're flourishing mm-hmm. or you can flourish so I just call these mamas and say just try just reach out for help yeah your mental health is important uh, when so Camila passed passed away I lost all sense of purpose I felt like my life was purposeless and I even thought about you know um that I didn't want to be alive yeah yeah but my therapist told me something very important is that the part of my brain that is telling me that you need to die you don't need to be alive with this pain is not a part of my brain that is meaning harm to me is a mechanism of protection right that my heart and my my brain are having against the pain but I cannot let that part of my brain dominate my life right okay I have to fight to flourish because I owe that to myself to my family as well so I think it's been a terrible terrible time for us but at the same time I am very um very happy to announce that that uh we are expecting our rainbow baby yeah i was just gonna ask you about that that's a good way to kind of wrap it all up is to say and actually we have another baby on the way and when are you due i'm due november 29 of 2020 okay and this baby was conceived the same month my camilla was conceived and it's a baby girl as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So sweet. Oh, my gosh. And Maria, well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing that story of Camilla. And just, I mean, I know I've had so many people um, when we, you know, when I announced that you were on the giveaway and I said, oh, she's going to come on the podcast. I've had so many people email me and so many people message me say, oh, I can't wait to hear this. I can't wait to, you know, hear her story in length because we, we shared it in, um, on Instagram and on, you know, social media, what you wrote up, but it's just, it's, it's amazing to hear you, you speak of it. Um, And I just, yeah, I wanted to, Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on here and telling your story. Um, it's just so, so wonderful. So, so thank you. 
Oh no, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, this is a great opportunity for me. And yeah. man, I've been crying for two weeks, Lisa, since <laughs> I give away. I cry every day. Uh, and I also to the people who contributed to our Amazon registry, you make me cry every day. Every day Aww. that I get a box. And I many many of the women who contributed to my registry are pregnant right now. They are, and yes. They, and they tell me, I cannot imagine if that happened to me. Yeah. So here is a contribution I'm making because I feel for you. And that just shows how amazing our community is. Yes, how absolutely. empathetic and, and, you know, loving. So I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you to you that are doing such a great job educating people and having them advocate. That's so important. Aww. And I want to say that I... I, I want I pray for you constantly Aww, and for you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Well, hey, I can you know we can always use prayers. I'm not definitely not opposed to that. So I appreciate your prayers absolutely. Well, I like to wrap episodes up with just if you wanted to remind listeners. I know you have a, a social media page for Camilla. If you wanted to share that, if anybody wanted to come and follow you on there, or your personal page or anything, if they wanted to. Um, wanted to follow up and just, you know, kind of see you, kind of see you on social media where, where they can find you. Okay. So in social media, you can find uh, Camila's Instagram. It is uh, hope for Camila mm-hmm. on Instagram. And then you can find my personal, which is Maria Eva Itriago. Okay. And for more information about our story, you, you can see actually pictures and videos of her hospital stay there. Yeah. And if someone needs help getting information about the specific medical condition or learning how to advocate, they need, you know, that support. Please don't doubt on reaching out to me because I yeah. think that's, that's awesome. amazing. Yeah, well, we'll definitely link all of those in the show notes page for anybody to reach out if they want to reach out to you. Thank you again, Maria, for coming on. This was just so, so wonderful. Oh, no. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you. (laughs) And thanks again to Maria for coming on the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast and telling her story of her daughter, Camilla. I mean, that was just, just such an amazing story, guys. Maria did offer some resources that I wanted to share here if you are looking for more resources or if you wanted to connect with me Maria she did I know say her Instagram handles at the end but I'll say them again here if you wanted to connect with her so her Instagram for herself is just at Maria Eva Itriago so it's at M-A-R-I-A-E-V-A-I-T-R- I-A-G-O, and that'll be in the show notes page as well. That's just her, and it's all one word. And then her Instagram for her daughter, for her daughter's page, is at Hope for Camilla, and that is at H-O-P-E Hope F-O-R Camilla C-A-M-I-L-A. She also encourages you, if you have a child with the Georges Syndrome, um, A very helpful website that she found helpful was www.22q.org. And then there's also the 22qfamilyfoundation.org. And we'll leave both of those links below as well. If this is you personally and you have a child with DeGeorgia syndrome, those are two websites that that she recommended to me. 
And then finally, she did have a few books. And again, all of this stuff is in the show notes page as well. But she did have a few books just for grieving families. If you unfortunately are in a similar situation where you're dealing with a lot of grief, especially you know child loss, um, a few that she recommended were The Fight to Flourish by Jenny Lusco. A second one is called It Was Not Supposed to Be This Way by Lisa Turkust. I think I'm saying that right. And then the last one is Be the One to Heal Yourself by Beth Rogerson. And we'll have all of these on the show notes page with links if you want to check any of those resources out. All right, so that is it for this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. You probably follow me on Instagram because that's probably where you came from. But if you don't, head over to Instagram and follow me at mommy.labornurse for more. That is certainly where I am most active. I also now have a separate Instagram for just this podcast. So I encourage you to follow my second account at mommylabornurse.podcast as well if you want podcast updates. Again, that is at mommylabornurse.podcast. As always, you guys know that I also have a website where I have tons of articles all about pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, newborn stuff, and more at www.mommylabornurse.com. I want to hear more from you on how much you love this episode of the podcast or how you think I can improve. So leave me a comment on one of my pictures, send me a DM, or send me an email with all the love. All right, guys, I will see you same time, same place next week.